Welcome to the Project Future podcast for people looking to launch and build their own amazing business. With me, Rob Kerr. A few years ago, I asked myself, how can people considering starting a business be confident they are making the right decision? And how can they improve their chances of success? The answer has become my book titled Project Future, Six Steps to Success as Your Own Boss. A Facebook group called the Project Future Club, where we support each other to launch and build our own amazing businesses. And this podcast, where every Tuesday, a business owner shares their story, including great tips about what to do and what not to do when launching or growing a business to empower you to make better decisions on your own journey. You'll find the show notes and transcripts at robkerr.co.uk. So in these uncertain times, if starting a business could be the right option for you and your family, read the book, join the Facebook group and enjoy the show. Now let's move on to this week's episode. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Project Future podcast. My guest this week is Mark Latterman, a highly experienced and commercially focused coach, mentor and facilitator with extensive experience in learning and development, talent and engagement. Mark's worked in senior L&D roles in a number of companies across a range of sectors, including tech, digital, media, finance, leisure and entertainment, and is the founder of Satchma Performance and Development, a strategic learning and development and coaching consultancy that has clients in sectors including media, advertising, leisure, journalism, the NHS, local government, universities and charities. He assists leaders in creating an environment where they and their teams thrive and excel. In this conversation, Mark explains how he found his niche in L&D, how he trialed being his own boss before taking the leap, how he's able to work across different industries and sectors, why he always starts with the problem, not the solution, how a seemingly counterintuitive approach has helped his business succeed, why being authentic is key, how you can focus on achieving a better work-life balance, why you're probably spending more time than you think on activities that don't help you achieve your objectives, why meetings should always be outcome-driven, the differentiating factor between team success and failure, what he's doing to give back, and the best self-promotion you can do. Mark's best advice is to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. There's lots to cover, so let's have a listen. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Now, delighted to have you here today. And as I say, you and I have worked together in the past, and I've, I've not had many guests at all that I've worked with in the past. So I, I clearly know a little bit about what you do, and but I'd, I'd love to hear how you started and, and indeed where you are now with, with your business. Yeah, sure. It's it's um, always quite good to sort of speak to someone who's worked with you before. The downside of that is that I can't make up any stories because you'll know whether I'm telling the truth or not. But, <laughs> but in answer to your question, I started off as a as a generalist HR person uh, years ago and gradually found myself gravitating towards learning and development. So although it was a generalist role, I, I spent most of my time uh, in learning and development. I, I found the sort of the generalist part of the job. Um, less interesting uh, and less enjoyable, you know, sort of disciplinaries, redundancies, things like that. Uh, as I say, I sort of a gradu- uh, sort of gradually moved into L&D. And then an ex-boss of mine moved out to Gibraltar to work for one of the gaming companies out there. And he called me one day and said, look, you've always wanted a specialist L&D role. How do you fancy jumping on a plane and uh, coming out to Gibraltar? 
um, to set up the uh, learning and development function for a company called Party Gaming, as they were called then. Um, and I thought, fantastic. I, I, why, why turn down the opportunity of a lifetime? They'd just gone through an IPO. They'd just gone into the FTSE 100, but they had very little in terms of sort of basic things that you'd expect a company of that size to have. So I went out there, set up the L&D function from scratch, um, stayed out there for about two and a half years. And to be honest, loved it. Um, it was a fantastic opportunity. Um, it gave me a real sort of grounding in, in L&D, the operational side and the strategy side of, of things. Um, and then I was ready to come back to the UK and move to Visa, Visa Europe, and spent five or six years there. Uh, and then I sort of ended up at Coral, which is where you and I uh, met. Um, and around about that time, I was beginning to get sort of questions and people coming to me and saying, look, Mark, you know a bit about leadership development. and um, we've, we've got a beauty parade next week. Would you mind sort of coming along and fielding any awkward questions about leadership? And I was sort of doing a few of these. And then I suddenly thought, well, hold on a second, you know, sort of maybe there might be a bit of a side hustle here. So I spoke to a couple of people about setting up my own business, not not because I wanted to, to um, sort of give up my, my full time job, but just as a as a sort of a thing to do evenings and weekends because I because I loved it. And it was so easy to set my own business up. So I so I did so. Um, and then gradually over the course of the next two or three years, the the the, the hobby, if you like, that I'd set up started to, to take up more and more of my time. And I found sort of towards the end of my time in paid employment that I was actually turning work down that I really wow. wanted to do because I had a a full-time job so I made the decision well why not give you notice in and, um, and and do it full-time so lots of people have this sort of idea that they've always wanted to be their own boss I kind of fell into it just by circumstance and just just because it uh, the hobby that I had the enjoyment that I had suddenly became um, my main way of, of earning a living yeah, I, I love the whole background there, Mark, of how you've you took that forwards. But the the last point you made there about having the side hustle and and then moving into, you know, getting that equilibrium, if you like, where you thought, okay, if if I can dedicate more time to this, then I can make it happen. I can make mm-hmm. it work. Mm-hmm. So that's that that's a fascinating point, and and it's something that I I touch on in in Project Future in the yeah. in the trial step, you know, because there's there's no risk involved there where where you've got the side hustle providing clearly that the employer on side and, and such things and it's it's not impacting the day job but to, to kind of test something in the market and and see if if there is demand for something that that you want and or you want to do i should say and then there is then you know that okay i'm i'm onto something here and then that's clearly the opportunity to take forwards as, as you did yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Robert. And 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 the way you put it in the book and the way you've just put it there now sounds a lot more structured and a lot more thought through than than the reality of my situation. <laughs> um, I'd I'd love to sort of sit here now and say yes, it was always part of my five year plan to to sort of you know the, for the hobby to become a a full time thing, but it really wasn't. It was simply just look, let's set this business up. It costs fifty quid online, and you can sort of you know uh, do it do it in sort of a, a few clicks just to sort of get paid for things that I was doing for nothing. And then I had a bit of a break in in the sense that someone came to me and said, we've got this client and they need a development program based around the CMI, Charter Management Institute, uh, Level 5 Diploma in Leadership and Management. Would you be interested in designing 
a six module training program to help these delegates through that process to enable them to have all the knowledge they need in order to do the, the assignments. And I thought, what a brilliant piece of work. So I spent sort of evenings and weekends for, for weeks and weeks and weeks designing this, um, this six module program. Um, and it was around about that time that I thought this is now getting to be a bit more than simply a hobby. Um, and it was around about that time that things started to sort of take off in terms of the business. And then the thoughts began to come to the top of my mind about maybe this is something that you might want to do to do more permanently. Fantastic. And, and as you've taken it forwards, I, I, I know that you've worked in a range of industries and sectors, you know, yeah. you're, you're really of a variety. So when that tends to happen, there tends to be a, a specific approach that's the, the that will kind of work across those sectors. So how is it that you work with your clients and, and add value to them? It's a, it's a great question. And, and I like to think that, that my approach is different depending upon the situation. However, the one thing that I always fixate on is what does the learner need? So we're very good at coming up with solutions, you know, sort of people phone me and say, I think we should do this, this and this. And I say, well, that may be, but let, what's the problem you're trying to solve? I think the first question you've got to ask yourself engaging with any new client or any existing client is what's the problem that you're trying to solve with a learning and development um, intervention when you've got clarity about the problem that you're trying to solve then all of a sudden the solution becomes a bit clearer don't start with the solution start with the problem so if i'm a learner and i need a new skill or behavior let's be clear about what that skill or behavior is and then come up with a solution that addresses that particular need. Don't try and do it the other way around. So yes, that can be different depending upon sector or depending upon industry. But if you're always fixated on what the learner actually needs to do or say or behave in a different way, you tend to find that much of the other stuff follows on a bit more logically. And that's the approach I tend to take with every client I have and every potential client I have. It's always that, you know, I've got a bit of a reputation now for constantly asking the question, what are you trying to do? What, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah. And it gets the business leaders to think, OK, what, what are we actually trying to do? What do we want people to be doing differently? Yeah, I love it. And I, I can see how that will add value to them in the way that they're rethinking. Perhaps mm. they're, they're rethinking their approach and, and indeed the outcomes that they're looking for. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and that's as, as well as going in and actually providing the solutions, you're, you're helping to develop the, the strategy around it as well. Yeah, you're right, Bob. And, and, and quite often the solution is a lot more cost effective than the one that they had in mind. So I, think, <laughs> I think I think people tend to jump to solution and, and we're all guilty of it. Of course we are. But but quite often leaders will think, oh, we need to have a development program and let's have it off site and let's have it modular and let's have it over the course of six months and we can make it this that and the other and then when you say <laughs> what are you trying to do as a result of it what do you want people to be doing differently as a result of it you then get them to answer that and they discover that maybe that solution that they come up with in their mind isn't the right one and there's something far more cost effective um, I'll give you I'll give you a very brief example there was uh, an organization that I do a lot of work with who wanted to um, improve the presentation skills of the people who, who worked in this particular group. And their solution was to stick them all on a presentation skills course. And that was going to cost thousands. And I was having a chat with the HR director and, 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 I, and I said, have you got any people within the organization who are really good at presenting? 
well, yes, of course we have. We've got this whole department that that's their job. I said, well, have you tried maybe getting them to be the the trainers for this group of people, to mentor them, to, to allow them opportunities to watch them in action as a first resort? If that doesn't work, then think about maybe paying an external supplier to run a program, but try and leverage the learning and the skills that you've got within the organization first, because it's far more cost effective. And it's also really good for that group of people who are very good at something to get the recognition that they're asked to pass their knowledge on to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's upskilling as well, isn't it? So it's upskilling your people, investing in them, showing you can see value in what it is that they can achieve and do for the business as well. So, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a great example. And it, it's something that comes up a, a lot on this show is that contractors and suppliers that go into companies here, you, you try and find the right solution to regardless of the economic benefits for at the end. And I, I love that approach and how that can be so positive for all parties involved and to go in and say, I'm, I'm not just going to try and get the biggest contract I possibly could from you. I'm going to provide the best answer and, and the right solution. Um, and and if, that's, if that only gives me half the return that the potential one could, then it doesn't matter. I'm happy. And I, I see that as such a positive way of doing business yeah, and, yeah. and probably why so many of, of, of my guests on the show have thriving businesses because they go into it with the right intentions and, and the, the ability to, to provide what the customer needs rather than what necessarily they want to sell them. Yeah. And, and that's exactly the right way to do it. I, I, I sometimes get my accountant sometimes shouts at me because I, I tell clients I would do this for nothing. Um, yeah. And I, and I, and I genuinely mean it. Uh, and in fact, you know, sort of the, there's, there's quite a lot of examples where I, where I have, and that's not sort of, you know, because I'm absolutely loaded and I don't have to work and I'm doing this as a hobby. It's much more around, you know what, there's a group of people that need, help and development i would love to be part of that and if i can be part of it and get paid great but actually i'd love to be part of it anyway because it's a really interesting project to to be involved in and i've found over the course of the last few years that that approach actually ironically leads to more business because people think well he's so passionate about what he does that he would do it for nothing We, we can't possibly get him to do it for nothing And then, of course, you start to get a reputation for just being really passionate about what you do and really caring. And ironically, something that on the face of it might cost me money actually has been really good for business over the course of the sort of the medium and long term. But but it's not a deliberate, you know, I didn't sort of set out to think, I know what I'll do. I'll tell people I'll do it for nothing and then get more business as a result. (laughs) It wasn't a deliberate thing. It was but it's a it's a nice consequence of really just being really interested and passionate about what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I say for for regular listeners, Agatha and Robbie um, in episode 29 did something similar at the start of lockdown in in 2020 when they, you know, when they offered an hour of their services just, just, just for free and then ended up getting a really, really big piece of work from the the UN as a result of that, uh, which was never, never in their plans. You know, it's like, I'm just going to do something nice and, 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 and help and offer our time for free at a time of need for people. And the universe does funny things, I think, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, you, yeah, and I, funny enough, I, I heard that episode and, and, and I was really struck by it because I think if your motivation is right, people will realise that. I think if you're trying it as a sales technique, then pretty soon people will see through that and see that it's an authentic offer an inauthentic offer yeah absolutely and and being authentic is so key isn't it in in business and 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 knowing knowing your subject matter and and being authentically there to there to help i think is, is such a key thing 
I, I agree. And, and, and the, the one thing that you've got to remember, ultimately, when you're your own boss, in my world, there are thousands of people that could do a good job for a particular organisation. You know, I'm not kidding myself. I've got a unique proposition or anything. What they're buying is you, Rob, in the end. Yep. They're actually buying you. If you come across as inauthentic or a bit slippery, then don't be surprised if you don't get that particular um, piece of work. Um, because there are plenty of other people out there that, that that could do the work just as well. So you're actually it's actually you that's being bought. Yes, yes, you know the, the the company name and everything, but they're buying you. They're buying the relationship that they feel as though they will have with you as an individual. Yeah, absolutely. I love it, and I think it's as I say, I think it's such a great way to to go about things for for, for all parties, which is which is such a positive way of working. Great. So let's move on a bit. So there's there's several things that you do in in terms of how you go in and and the the coaching that you do to to improve performance and things but i know one of the things you focus on is is maintaining a healthy work-life balance for for leaders so that that can be that can be so tricky you know we know we know now with um especially with working from home but more generally just over the last kind of five or ten years with having mobile phones and emails in your pocket all the time all that kind of thing so I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you you go about doing that for for leaders and how they can still support their teams whilst being able to take time off yeah absolutely and and i, I think this last year or so has, has highlighted this even more because yes we've been able to to work from home and yes you know sort of there's there's been more flexibility maybe in, in, in our in our work patterns because we are working from home. The downside of that is that we are even more accessible than we ever were. So in the past, Bob, let's say, you know, when we were working together, we wanted to set up a meeting. We'd probably have to, you know, book a meeting room and there'd be a few hurdles to get over and that kind of thing. Now I just send you an email with a link and and you're on it 30 seconds later, regardless of where in the world you are. That's fantastic. But it's also the downside of that is that, that, that it's expected or can be expected that you're immediately available for that meeting. Um, and I found over the last year that one of the things that, that everyone has struggled with, not just people in leadership positions, but everyone has struggled with is the ability to be able to turn off, particularly if your workspace is also the kitchen or the, the living room or the bedroom. You know, where do you have the line between work and home life? In the old days where we used to commute into work, you had a sort of a demarcation between the two and people might promise themselves that they would stop looking at their emails as soon as they got off the train, you know, uh, or or as soon as they walked through the front door. We're not doing that at the moment. So there isn't any kind of demarcation. What I tend to do with leaders is ask them, number one, are you comfortable with the balance that you currently have? Because then you're raising their awareness about their current situation. Are you comfortable? If the answer is yes, then you're looking for a problem to solve that, that isn't there. If the answer is no, then the technique I, I tend to use is asking them, if you, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and things would be as good as you would hope them to be, what would be different? And you get them to just talk through how they would like their situation to be different from the one they're currently in. Um, and you'd be surprised some of the things that people come up with. Um, you know, sort of, oh, I, I just like, I just like half an hour to, to be able to walk the dog at lunchtime. Okay, well, let's talk about how you might be able to carve that half an hour out. Who controls your diary at the moment? Are you in complete control of your diary or does everyone have access to it? Do you find it difficult to say no to meetings? Do you find um, that there are certain people that just demand your immediate attention? Once you get into the actual reality of their situation, you can then begin to work on some 
potential options in terms of um, addressing those those issues. It's, it's similar techniques to what you would tend to use in any situation. Raise their awareness of an issue, get them to think about what great looks like, what they would like the situation to be, explore a few options, and then get them to commit to doing something differently as a result of the conversation. Yeah, I, I love it. And I say there's there's so much you can take out of that as well. And it's like looking back to to my own kind of career when I was in a, a kind of nine to five environment there, even though it was it was very rarely was nine to five. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to say, I did this. <laughs> <laughs> but but certainly the. The, 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 some people's diaries you know are just horrible you know mine I, I did try and keep it as as much as possible structured so I, I i can see it from both sides but but certainly you'd have some people that had a full diary and being able to say no to meetings and 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 carving out that time of the day i think is is so important as is switching off you know i know one of the features that's that's come in is that you can you can have out of hours you say i'm you know, i'm available kind of like eight eight till six or eight till six thirty whatever it may be but at the same time it can be really tricky to, to as you say to to say no and and especially as a leader and if you've got a, a global business um as, as so many so many do you know I've, I've worked with clients in in new zealand and yeah. elsewhere over the last couple of years where by default you're, you're working hours are going to be quite odd and you know, it's it, it can be so tricky to to switch off. So yeah, so so many great tips there in, in terms of you know just just stepping back, isn't it? It's about stepping back and looking at the overall situation and probably indeed the goal. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I, I run a um, sort of a time management um, program for for clients, which is probably one of the most popular ones that I do actually, because it's so, as you rightly say, it's so easy to get sucked into to all of these meetings and and things and 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 there's a particular technique that's that's really helpful and many of your listeners will will probably be familiar with this the eisenhower matrix uh, you, you, you'll no doubt be familiar the urgent and yep. important matrix and what i get people to do is actually not to think about how they think they're going to spend their time but to actually review their last week or their last month and then each of the activities they actually ended up doing, putting them into one of the four boxes around the urgent and important matrix. I get them to do that and they are, to a, to a person, every single person who does it is so surprised about how much of their stuff they do that is not important. So if important stuff is something that helps you to achieve one of your objectives and urgent stuff is something that has a time critical element to it, it stands to reason that every task can be one of those, both of those, or neither of those. The amount of time we spend doing stuff urgently that doesn't actually help us to achieve our objectives, you'd, you'd be gobsmacked by the amount of time that people spend in activity that doesn't help them to achieve their objectives. Once they become aware of that, Rob, they then have the choice of whether there are things in the week that they can delegate to others or just say no to. Do you need to go to that meeting? Do you need to answer that email straight away? Or can you block off an hour in your calendar in the afternoon to bomb through hundreds of emails? Because meetings and emails, I would suggest are the two things above everything else that makes our days get longer and longer and longer. And we, I, I would suggest that many people waste so much time in meetings that they don't actually need to be in, but they because of the accessibility thing we spoke about earlier they've accepted the invite and they go along even though they don't necessarily need to be there we waste so much time in meetings and answering emails that that, that we don't really need to 
um, and, and people are amazed by how they actually do spend their time in the end once they've once they've used that particular technique yeah it's fascinating isn't it and uh, i think these things are kind of developing all the time aren't they in terms of what adds value and what doesn't you know and, and certainly you know working in an agile environment for a few years you, you kind of have the, the the morning sessions where yeah. you you kind of get together just for 10 minutes and if anybody's got anything to flag that's it you have to do it within that 10 minutes otherwise it's not important yeah. and it's not on the list yeah. for the day but so easily that meeting could last for half an hour or an hour but it's it, it, it's stuck to 10 minutes to say okay we should be able to cover everything that we need to within this short time frame Absolutely. But that's a brilliant. So what I love about agile stuff is it's all done stood up as well. There's no sort yep. of sitting around and having a chat over coffee for five or 10 minutes before you <laughs> even start. Uh, but one, one, of, one of the things that, that I've always uh, I'd always encourage people to do is instead of saying we have got half an hour for this meeting because Zoom's great. It, it does it in, in 15 and 30 minute sort of increments um, unless you sort of type it in. What tends to happen is a half hour meeting lasts half an hour. If you say, look, Rob, you and I will, will, will meet and we need to do this one thing or these two things. And as soon as we've done those two things, we can both walk away. You tend to find that meetings are a lot quicker because it's actually focused on the output of the meeting rather yeah. than how long the meeting's going to be. Yeah. But we do. We say, oh, yeah, we need half an hour for that. Well, no, actually, let's let's think about what we're actually trying to achieve. And as soon as we've achieved that, get on with the rest of your day. And that it might just be two minutes. It might be a very quick conversation. It may be 45 minutes. But don't let the tail wag the dog. Decide what you want to achieve in that meeting. And as soon as you've got it done, then move on. Yeah. Um, I love it. And it makes you think about the agenda as well, doesn't yeah. it? It it brings that agenda into account because certainly for, for formal meetings, you know, steering meetings, all that kind of thing, you when you when you're getting the, the, the senior leaders around the table, they demand an agenda. They they want to know what they're covering, um, have inputs in advance so they can prepare and all this kind of thing. And those meetings are always outcome driven effectively yeah. rather than time driven. So yeah, I, I love the way that, you know, how, how you're suggesting that can can come down the chain if you like and and, and should apply even on a one-to-one meeting you know and and to, to focus on what it is that you're looking to achieve and and clearly as you say it might last two minutes or 45 yeah. because there it, it may take some time to find that solution yeah and we and and i think final final point on this the other thing is that we do tend to make meetings half an hour or an hour one of the techniques that I used with a with a senior leader who I was coaching a couple of years back was to, to instead of doing the half an hour and an hour, as a first step, make it 25 minutes and 55 minutes. Because psychologically, <laughs> you get a lot more done because people think, oh, we've only got 25 minutes. Right, okay, we need to focus. If it's half an hour or an hour, it's a nice round number, isn't it? So you tend to sort of fill the time. Mm. And he found literally overnight by, by adopting that approach, they were far more effective in what they actually achieved in the meetings to the extent that he was a senior leader and all of his direct reports also did the same technique with their own people. So all of a sudden, dozens, if not hundreds of people were, were gaining time back in their calendar by something as simple as lopping five minutes off a off an allocated meeting. 
Yeah, it's so simple, isn't it? But it, it, it changes the, the the dynamic and like so much of what we've covered today, it's it's, it's stepping back, isn't it? And, and and reflecting on what it is that you're looking to achieve. So yeah. uh, I, I feel I feel very guilty about the fact that most of the stuff that I talk about on a day to day basis is extremely simple. I'd love to come on a, a program like this and say everything is really complicated and you need someone like me to sort of, you know, explain it to you. <laughs> but 95 percent of leadership is common sense. You know, treat people the way you want to be treated yourself and you will not go far wrong. Yes, we can talk about models and we can talk about sort of, you know, theories and various leadership books and podcasts and blah, blah, blah. Actually, how would you like to be treated in that situation? Okay, well, why don't you treat the other person that way? Much So much of it is just common sense and, and, and simple solutions. Yeah, I love it. I, I think it's really fascinating stuff. So it's like looking at it at a slightly different angle. You've yeah. got team performance coaching. So, in, yes, we've covered a lot of stuff on individuals, but how you can work on a kind of one-to-one basis. Yeah. But how would you work with a with a team that aren't necessarily performing in a way that a, a leader would want them to be in order to, to drive that performance as a collective? Fundamentally, teams only work when the people within that team trust each other. That's that's the bottom line. Okay, if you look back over teams that you've been involved in in the past that have either been very successful and and highly functioning or less successful, the differentiating factor is most likely to be that the members of that team either trusted each other or didn't trust each other. And this isn't groundbreaking stuff. Lenke only talked about this sort of 20 odd years ago in his five dysfunctions of a team. So it's not it's not sort of new theory, but it's true. And I look back over teams that I've worked in that I absolutely loved working in and it was because the members of the team trusted each other once you've got that if you like that foundation Rob then everything else tends to fall into place because if you and I are in a team and I trust that you are coming at things from a good place and that you genuinely want the best for the team I'm far more likely to be accepting of any feedback that you give me about sort of something that I've done because I know that it's not a personal criticism of me it's just an observation that maybe what I did wasn't the best thing I could have done does that make sense it does yeah um, and, and I think if you've got that foundation of trust then everything else that you need in terms of being focused on the um, the objective of the team being able to uh, critically challenge each other without it causing issues being able to produce results that all if you like sits on top of the bedrock of trust so if i was working with a team um, that, that that wasn't performing as well as it, it could be the, the first question i would ask the leader is what level of trust do you think exists between the members of the team and they invariably, if it's a if it's a less than highly functioning team, will say, well, actually, these people don't get on or, or I don't think there is a level of trust there. So we would spend a lot of time both individually with the leader and also with the team itself thinking about how you can increase the levels of trust. What What's trust made up of? Why are you saying at the moment that you don't feel as though you can trust these people? What you know, What's going on? Do a bit of a diagnostic around that. Raise the awareness that trust is important at the moment it is it's not at the right level and then talk about the responsibility of each member of that team to increase the levels of trust within that team yeah i think that's fabulous and <laughs> what a great answer as well you know that was absolutely fabulous in, in and bringing it all back to trust 
yeah. um, I say having having been in those environments myself is so so key. And uh, just looking at it in that way uh, and, and framing it in that way, and then finding the solutions to to, to gain more more trust. And you know, there, there's so many ways that that can be done as yeah. well, isn't there? And depending on the on the situation, whether it's you know organizing a, a, a team social or you know or whatever it may be to to kind of help engage people that that may as we found recently more so even may not geographically be in the same place as well so that can add challenges and certainly where i've worked in in an m a environment you've got people coming from you know from different companies effectively becoming part of the same team some of which may be competing for the same job further down yeah, the line yeah. so so i i can see many many examples of, of of where this works and how it does all fall back on trust uh, so yeah, what a fabulous answer. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right, Robin, and it links back to what we, what you were saying earlier about authenticity. So, mm. so if you and I work together, and you genuinely feel that if I say something, I mean it, and I'm saying it for the right reasons, you're more likely to trust me, and vice versa. If yep. you think that I've got a hidden agenda, or I'm playing politics, or I'm not being authentic, then don't be surprised if you and I aren't a highly functioning unit because you're going to be trying to second guess everything that I say. Yeah. Love it. And uh, yeah, I, I think you've, you've collected everything in, in one very nicely there, <laughs> indeed, from what we've covered today. So so thank you, Mark. It's been it's been lots of fun. And bef- before we go on to the questions, uh, the, the, the final questions that I ask every guest, what's yeah. the future for you? How, how do you see your business developing? Um, well, I, I'm at a stage now where I made a decision about six months ago that I wanted to increase the amount of pro bono work that I do. So I've always done sort of pro bono work, but I wanted to increase it to about 25% of my working week. And it was around about sort of 10% before. And I made a conscious decision that I would increase the amount of pro bono work that I do. And I'll explain in a second why, why that is. But, but that meant that I would either extend my working hours, which, as, as we've spoken about already, isn't necessarily the right thing to do, or cut down on some of the work that I was doing currently so I sort of just having made that conscious decision I I I have scaled back some of the the paid work that I do I've obviously sort of kept any commitments that I had but I've I've been saying no a little bit more over the last few months in terms of some paid work because I, I am very keen to 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 do more pro bono work and when I say pro bono work I mean sort of one-to-one coaching with uh, maybe leaders of organizations who who don't have budgets for that kind of thing yep. um, so a lot of public sector people people who work in, um, in in the charitable sector who are very very good and talented at what they do but don't have budgets for someone like me to, to to coach them and I get just so much pleasure out of out of sort of helping people who are brilliant at what they do and are doing fantastic jobs in organizations that are doing wonderful things but just need somebody like me to just bounce a few ideas off or to just chat through some leadership or management issues that they might have. And the reason I wanted to to increase it was because when I was uh, sort of starting off in my career, I I was very fortunate that I had a couple of bosses who invested a lot of time and effort in me and saw maybe a spark of potential in me and gave me every opportunity to, to grow and develop. I promise myself sort of at that time that when I'm in a position to be able to do something like that, I want to be able to do it and to sort of, if you like, invest my time in helping other people who maybe are sort of, you know, maybe 10, 20 years sort of earlier in their career than I am. And I found it, well, 
genuinely i i absolutely love it and 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 the good thing about it is that i can actually say to my accountant i'm doing this for nothing <laughs> without, <laughs> without 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 feeling sort of in any way that she's going to have a real go at me um because i told her sort of about the plans but i find i get as much if not more out of those conversations than i'm than i do now out of some of the paid work that i do um, so it's just simply being sort of, I know it sounds a little bit cheesy, but it's kind of giving back to, if you like, the, the, the universe, um, some stuff that, that, that I was given um, 30 odd years ago when, when I first started out. Yeah, fantastic. And, and it's great to have that balance, isn't it, as well to, you know, to, to have different types of different types of work, different, different challenges to go through as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah what a great thing. And uh, yeah, congratulations to you on, in terms of where you've where you've got to and indeed, everything that you've got, you've got ahead. So yeah, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Rob. Moving on to the four questions that I ask every guest on the show, I'd love you to share your best advice for somebody thinking about starting a business today. I would say, if you're thinking about setting up your own business, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Okay, I spend quite a lot of time coaching people who are career crossroads, and the one thing that I make uh, that I get them to consider is: Are you doing this for positive reasons, i.e., to move towards something that you really want, or are you doing it to escape your current situation, which you don't like? So you're moving away from a negative situation. If you're moving away from a negative situation, the danger is you're just going to jump from the you know, from the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. If you're thinking of setting up your own business, make sure that you're doing it for positive reasons that you've got. You know, we talked a lot about passion, that you're passionate about what you want to do, that you've got you've answered the question, why am I wanting to do this? Yep. Yeah? So you're moving towards something positive rather than moving away from a job, you know, a paid job that you don't like doing because ultimately one of the things i found is you've got to love what you do if you don't love what you do then you will find being your own boss 10 times more difficult than being um, someone on the payroll you've got to love what you do you'll sometimes hate what you do or hate you know the, the situation because it's ultimately it's it's all on your shoulders but in order to get you through you've got to absolutely love what you do so if you're thinking about setting up your own business Ask yourself the question, why is it that I want to do this? And make sure that you're making that transition because it's something you desperately want to do rather than simply trying to escape something that you're not enjoying at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And there's so many ways that that can be done as well in, in terms of looking beyond the obvious. You know, I think it, it can be so easy to just go and, and start a business in something precisely what you've done before whether you've enjoyed it or not yeah. you know and and to be able to kind of just take a step back and go okay you know it's that it's it's the whole uh, icky guy thing isn't it yeah. in yeah. terms of you know what what do i know what can i be paid for uh, but to, to look at it and and find a, a creative solution that does factor in your experience it does factor in your skills and what people know you for but then also adds that really personal element to it of the of, of what you get out of it yourself and what you'll enjoy so yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. a great answer. So what do you know now that you wish you knew back in 2014 when you started your business? I think something that's been reinforced rather than something that it's not necessarily something I didn't know back in 2014. But if you do a great job, people will recommend you. So I would say to myself seven years ago, you don't have to be a brilliant self-marketeer because that was the one thing I was thinking about. Oh, you know, I'm not very good at networking. I'm not very good at sort of self-promotion. Actually, doing a good job 
is the best self-promotion you can do. You don't have to be the type of person that can walk into a room full of strangers and within five minutes have 100 business cards and given 100 business cards out. Um, so I would say to myself from seven years ago, don't worry about referrals. Worry about doing a fantastic job for the client you've got in front of you. Because if you do a fantastic job, then they will want you to work for them again, but they're also likely to recommend you to contacts they've got. Yeah, that's fantastic, and it builds momentum as well, doesn't it? All of that, all of that builds momentum, and uh, yeah, I say that's why getting a good solid start is so key. You know, because if you can do that and show value, then then yeah, people people will do that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely, absolutely. So, is is there a resource? Uh, so, a book, a podcast, a website, anything that you'd you'd recommend, either in the L and D space or or more generally? Um, well, there's there's loads. I mean, I I read vociferously. Is that, is that the right word? Vociferously, yeah. I think um, so, yep. Yeah, good. Well, it's, it's, well I said it confidently, so um, yeah. Um, I, I, I set myself a challenge of reading four books a month at the start of, of 2021, and, and, and I'm actually ahead of schedule at the moment. And at least one of those books a month is, is, a, is a business book. I just I, I devour books about leadership, about um, all things to do with sort of psychology. And I suppose um, in, in terms of specifically around sort of setting up your own business, Leaving aside your own book, which um, you'll you'll recall a conversation you and I had about three months ago where I said, I wish I had this book seven years ago when I was setting my (laughs) business up. So so on the assumption that that it's a given that um, your book will be on that list, I think the other book that I would recommend for people who maybe are a bit concerned about how well they might be in terms of self-promotion and in terms of networking how you know how do where do I get clients from I'm not the type of person to you know to, to be sort of out there there's a book called Never Eat Alone um, which is by a chap called Keith Ferrazzi and it's it's a brilliant book it really is he talks about networking but he's um, he basically comes at it from the point of view of don't look at networking for what you can get out of the relationship Think about networking in terms of what you can provide the other person in the relationship. Yeah. And I thought that was a wonderful way of looking at networking. So rather than thinking, oh, I need to network in order to get loads of business. Actually, it would be good to network because I can provide things for other people that would be helpful to them. Um, and you tend to find, and, and, and one of the main sort of points in the book is that by doing that, then it becomes a reciprocal arrangement rather than sort of you bleeding someone else dry or vice versa it's a really really good book and and i read it sort of around about the time that i was thinking about setting my own business up because as i say self-promotion wasn't one of the things that i was necessarily particularly good at so that would be a book that i'd recommend the other the other one that 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 i've read uh, i read last month is matthew syed um he's he's a great um, writer and no doubt you'll be familiar with him he, he was a he was a te- table tennis player for, for great britain but he then became a times journalist and has written three or four fantastic books his latest one rebel ideas is excellent talks about cognitive diversity and it's 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 just a brilliant read it, he's got a really great style it's not in any way sort of you know you don't need to be an expert in in leadership or management to read it he just tells stories that illustrate the points that he's trying to make and it's and it's a brilliant brilliant book Fantastic, and yeah, two two brilliant recommendations, and and certainly going back to the the Kieferazzi book, you know, everything that you said there, and how it links to to the trust, authenticity, and simplicity as well, yeah. in in terms of bringing those elements into it that 
everything that you you were saying as as you spoke there, I was thinking about earlier on in the conversation where you said about how you focus on what the learner needs rather than necessarily what the solution needs to be. So I, I can see how that all all kind of builds together yeah. and how how you've taken that forward. So no, brilliant stuff. And is there a guest that you'd recommend for a future episode of the show? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a lady who's uh, we've known each other sort of ten or twelve years now. Her name's uh, Preeti Nair. And she has got an absolutely fascinating story. And I'm not going to spoil it for, for you or your, or your listeners by telling you anything about um, the story. I'll let her tell it because she's uh, she will tell it sort of 100 times better than I could. Um, <laughs> but, she, but she basically set up her own business uh, quite a few years ago, which is a storytelling business. She's written a number of books. She um, is a sort of a serial entrepreneur, sort of sets businesses up. And also um, she is she's a playwright as well. So she's one of these particularly annoying people that is brilliant at everything that she does. Um, (laughs) So I would thoroughly recommend that you get her on the program because she's got some wonderful, wonderful anecdotes, wonderful stories. And and as and as sort of uh, in terms of some of the stuff that we've spoken about today, about setting your own business up, she's seen it, done it and bought the T-shirt. So I would definitely recommend that uh, Pre comes on the program. Well, what a fantastic recommendation. I think that's absolutely fabulous. And uh, I love storytelling and I think it's so important to business and, and how we're how we're taking business forward. So, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff. And just finally, Mark, if people want to find out more about you um, and your business, where, where should they go and what should they do? Okay, so um, so uh, the website is um, sachma.org and that's S-A-C-H-M-A.org. Uh, that's the company website. Um, on there is everything that that, that, that we do uh, and if they want to uh, get in touch with me personally it's mark at satchma.org brilliant well thank you so much it's been brilliant speaking with you and for someone that i i, I thought i knew i now know a hell of a lot more about so <laughs> brilliant. Oh. so so brilliant stuff thank you mark it's been great fun thanks ever so much rob well i hope you enjoyed today's episode there was so much covered there in 40 minutes But let's break it down to the name of the episode, Trust, Authenticity and Simplicity. I loved Mark's point about how all successful teams trust each other. Like so many good things, gaining trust can sometimes take a long time to achieve, but it can be very quick to destroy. Regardless of the structure of your team or virtual team, if you've got a small business, I'm sure there are things you can take from what Mark said that will help to improve trust and could make the difference between success and failure. On authenticity, That's something I've always tried to do in my own career, and I strongly believe that if you look to do things for the right reasons, you'll be rewarded either directly or indirectly. I speak in Project Future about contractors trying to hide things from their clients in order to become reliant upon and to get their contracts extended. My approach, on the other hand, has always been to share as much as I can in as short a space of time as possible, to make myself redundant, as it were. And it's amazing how often I've been extended whereas those who have tried to hide things have been given a short period of time to leave. Finally, on simplicity. Business can be complicated, but sometimes it can be overcomplicated for no good reason. Mark freely admits that most of his advice is simple, but that doesn't make it any less vital, or indeed any less easy to overlook. What can you take from this episode that you'll do in future that's more simple than it is now? I'd love to hear your thoughts on email at hello at robcur.co.uk or via my Facebook group, the Project Future Club. On next week's show, I speak with the author of Humanising B2B and marketing leader, Paul Cash, on adding sugar to the B2B cake. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep launching and building those amazing businesses that give you satisfaction, 
and balance.